church. Uh, happy Easter to everyone. Glad to have our members here. Glad to have our guests with us as well. And also the live streamers who are joining us online. Now here's a note to the live streamers. We are going to, at the end of my message, we're going to show a, a video. It's four minutes long. We have limited broadcast rights for that video. So we will be cutting the live stream at that time, coming back four minutes later. So apologize for that. But that's the perks of being here in person. Sure could use a little good news today. You know, the news is so bad. Thank you. It is so bad that there are mental health experts who advise taking a news fast. And you've heard of fasting before, but this is a news fast, maybe for a week at a time. For instance, Dr. Andrew Wheel, he writes, taking periodic breaks from the news can promote mental calm and help renew your spirits. It can improve your mood, ameliorate anxiety, reduce depression, and strengthen your immunities. So I took that advice. I've been on, on a news fast for this past week. I don't have a clue what's going on in the world, but my immunities are off the charts. And I got to say, that really works. So we're looking for good news. Our sermon series this month has been headlines. The word gospel, as you know, comes from two old English words that mean good news, good news. My question for us this morning is, what's so good about the gospel? What makes the gospel good news? And that's what we're going to delve into this morning. There are many reasons that we could talk about. There are many facets to the gospel. I'm just going to talk about three things, and this will be somewhat of a review because most of us here this morning are Christians, but what we're going to talk about today is good for us to review, to revisit this foundation of our faith. So this is three reasons why the gospel is good news. Number one, because it's historically demonstrable. It is true, in other words. It is historically demonstrable. Acts chapter 17, verse 31, this is the apostle Paul preaching. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. See the word proof. This is the apologetic value of the resurrection. Apologetic means the defense of the faith. This is part of the evidence for why we believe what we believe. Because if something isn't true, then it's not good news, no matter how good it sounds up front. I, had a, I got a friend request on Facebook a while back from a guy named Randy that I had gone to college with. So I accepted it. We were friends. Almost instantly, I get a message from Randy. It says, hey, Steve, just wanted you to know I, I recently won some money in a contest. And he says, I was online. I happened to notice when I was looking at the names of other winners, your name, it looked like your name was on the list. If you want to find out, he had embedded a link in his message that just click on this link and you can go see if your name is one of those names. So do you think I did that? No. My spidey sense was tingling. I suspected this might be a scam, so I sent him a question. I said, Randy, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. What position did I play on the basketball team in college? Because only Randy would know that. And he replied, uh, Steve, why are you asking me these questions? I'm just trying to get you some money. Click unfriend Randy from college. Well, what's the point? Point is, it sounded good. Hey, you may already be a winner, but if it's not true, it's not good news. So what about, what about the gospel? Is it true? Yes, it is historically reliable. And by the way, this is one of the things that differentiates Christianity from other religious truth claims. Other than the Bible, how many books are there? How many books are there that claim to be divinely inspired? 
lot of people think there's scores or hundreds. There's not. There's basically only four other books, major books that claim to be inspired. Now, if you ask the adherents of those religions, uh, why should I believe that your writings are inspired of God? The answer is going to come back, trust us. Just trust us or pray about it. And you'll get, a, you'll get a confirmation in your heart or in your spirit. All right, well, I'm just not that trusting. I'm a bit of a skeptic. If you ask the church, why should I believe that Christianity is authentic, that it's inspired of God? The answer is not going to come back, just trust us. The answer is going to come back to the resurrection. That is the proof that God has offered to all men. Now, the case for the resurrection basically comes down to a, an argument of cause and effect. There are six historical facts, or we might call them, call them effects, for which the resurrection is the only reasonable cause. For every effect, there must be a cause sufficient to explain that effect. And here come those six effects. Now, I have arranged these in uh, an acronym that spells Easter because that's what I do. And that's a memory aid. So today over lunch, I want you to ask your grown kids, your spouse, your friend, how many of those Easter things can you remember that Steve was talking about? But every letter, letter in this acronym stands for one of these six historical facts. All right, let's go. E stands for empty, as in the empty tomb. The tomb of Jesus was empty. A stands for appearances. That is the post resurrection appearances of Jesus that he made over a 40-day period to individuals and to groups. The S in Easter stands for Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was the great persecutor of the church. He was converted and became the great apostle and a proclaimer of the church. No question that Paul lived. He impacted Western civilization probably more than any other man other than Jesus. But why did he convert? He says it's because he saw the resurrected Jesus. The T of Easter stands for transition. The transition from Saturday to Sunday as the church's special day. As you may know, for the first 10 years of church history, it was all Jewish converts. There were no non-Jews in the church for its first 10 years. The Jews had been worshiping God on Saturday for centuries. And then all of a sudden... They began worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why did that happen? The second E in Easter stands for the establishment. Establishment and rapid growth of the early church. Where did the church come from? It did not just spontaneously generate. The R of Easter stands for resolve. The resolve and commitment of the apostles and other eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, even in the face of certain death, if they did not recant their testimony. As we know, some people will die for what they believe to be true, but almost no one will die for what he knows to be a lie. Now, those are six historical facts, really undisputed facts as far as even skeptics don't dispute that these things happen, for which the only reasonable explanation as a cause is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection did indeed happen. And that is what proves, these are the things that prove the resurrection. What does the resurrection prove? The resurrection in turn proves that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. Because anybody can make that claim. Anybody can claim to be the Son of God. But only one man proved it by raising from the dead. And it also proves that everything that Jesus taught is authoritative and binding on our lives. 
The Hebrew writer says, faith is the evidence, the evidence of things that we cannot see. The standard of proof in Christianity is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why we believe as Christians. And that's why one of the reasons the gospel is good news, because it's true and it's historically demonstrable. And again, this is one thing that sets Christianity apart from all other religious truth claims. All right, what are we talking about? Why is the good news good? Here's a second reason. The good news is good because the death of Jesus solves our guilt problem. The death of Jesus. You know, normally a death is not good news, but the death of Jesus is part of the gospel, the good news, because the death of Jesus solves our guilt problem. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, here's the thing. Here's the truth about us. This is the human condition that we have all sinned. And a sin is a breaking of God's law. That's the definition of sin. Breaking God's law, rebellion, it, it constitutes rebellion against God. And as sinners, we come under the path, we're in the path of the wrath of a holy and righteous God. And that's right. That's what we deserve. That, that is what we have earned. And the penalty right? The penalty for sin is eternal separation from God. The Bible calls this hell or condemnation. It's described as a, as a state of suffering, but that's the penalty, and it lasts forever. I, I used to watch a TV show, and it had a theme song by Sammy Davis Jr. The song is The Eye of the Sparrow, and it included these lyrics. Don't do the crime if you can't do the what? The time. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. We've done the crime. We've, we've broken God's law. We've committed the sin, and that brings us under a penalty, a judgment in God's eyes. And we don't want to do that time. We do not want to spend eternity in hell and in condemnation. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' death was not an ordinary death. It was, it was not like every other death. It's what the Bible calls an atonement. An atonement is a sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. It is a substitutionary death. That is, when Jesus died, of course, he was sinless. He took the guilt of our sin upon himself and thereby was taking that, that punishment, that eternal punishment. He took that upon himself and he suffered that punishment in our place. Now, this frees God to forgive our sin. Otherwise, God couldn't because he, he is merciful and gracious and forgiving, but he's also just and righteous. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished and still be true to his own nature. But when Jesus took our sins upon himself as the substitute, as the sin bearer, now God is free to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 2, 2. John writes, Jesus is the one who took God's wrath against our sins upon himself. Let me read that verse in six other versions. Jesus is the payment for our sins. He died in our place to take away our sins. He gave his life to pay for our sins. He paid for our sins with his own blood. He is the sacrifice God offered to pay for the wrong that we have done. Okay, so we get that. The death of Jesus solves our guilt problems. Now, how long? Anybody know how long did Jesus suffer on the cross before he died six hours six hours six hours on the cross say wait a minute our penalty was eternity 
in hell, he only suffered six hours. How does that equate? How does that math work out? Here's the thing. Theologians believe this. Now, God, of course, God was, or Jesus rather, was not just human. He was a God-man. He was God in the flesh. So, whereas we are finite, we are finite beings, Jesus was the eternal logos. He's God. He's eternal. Jesus is infinite. An infinite being suffering for a finite period of time is equal to finite beings suffering for an infinite period of time. See, the math works. And it's one of the reasons why the substitute, the sin bearer, could not be a human being, a finite being. Had to be divine. One of the reasons Jesus was the only one qualified to step in and take the punishment of all of us upon himself. The gospel is good news because the death of Jesus solves our guilt problem. And then the other reason, the gospel is death, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us the gospel in a nutshell. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the death of Jesus. Now let's think about the resurrection of Jesus. This saves us also in a different way. The resurrection solves our corruption problem. So you've got sin results in double trouble, a double curse, guilt and corruption. These are two different things. And the resurrection of Jesus solves our corruption problem. Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with Christ. Now, Sin has a corrupting effect upon us. It not only makes us guilty, it makes us sick. It makes us spiritually sick. It corrupts our hearts. It makes us increasingly sinful. Now, we're good at rationalization and justification. Let me tell you about two-gun Crowley, real person. On May 7, 1931, the most sensational manhunt New York City had ever known came to its climax after weeks of searching Two-Gun Crowley was trapped in his girlfriend's apartment on the West End. I don't know if you can see that, but that's a picture of Crowley up there. When Crowley was captured, the police commissioner declared that he would kill at the drop of a feather. But how did Two-Gun Crowley regard himself? We know, because while the police were firing into his apartment, he wrote a letter to whom it may be concerned. And in this letter, he said, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. Crowley was sentenced to the electric chair, and when he arrived at the death house in Sing Sing, did he say, this is what I get for killing people? No. He said, this is what I get for defending myself. Even murderers can justify themselves, can rationalize away their behavior. We're all good at that. But at some point, we have to get to the place where we look into the mirror of God's Word, and, and we say, as we mentioned last week, no, I'm, I'm the bad guy. There's something broken in me. There's something wrong with me, and, and I cannot fix it. It's like uh, the folks say in recovery. You know, I, I admitted that I was helpless before my addiction. I had to look to a higher power. I had to look to God to come. And, and I did a fearless moral inventory and asked God to remove, remove these faults from my life and believe that he can and ask him to do it. That's not just true of addicts. We all have chronic sin in our life. I think this is the human condition. Every person has at least one chronic sin. It's a weakness. It's a temptation that we are powerless before. That's the sin sickness or the corruption, the power that sin has over us. Now, what, so here's the thing. 
When a person becomes a Christian, when a person is saved, here's where the power of Jesus' resurrection comes in. We sang a song. I jotted down these lyrics. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. God uses the resurrection power of Jesus to heal our sin sickness and our corruption. The Bible speaks of this as being born again, of having your heart regenerated, but the language that's used mostly is being made alive with Jesus or being resurrected with Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4, God made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, God raised us up with Christ. Now, this happens when, you're, when we're saved. We're resurrected, and it's the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. He is the Spirit of holiness. He is in us to help us to be holy, to apply the resurrection power to our lives so we can become progressively more and more like Christ. Not like when we're saved, we're instantly perfect or holy. We still struggle. We're in process. But now we've had a healing on the inside, and God's power is helping us in our walk with the Lord. Okay, so we're saying, why is the good news good news? Number one, it's true. It's historically demonstrable. Number two, the death of Jesus solves our guilt problem. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus solves our corruption problem. Let's pause for a minute and sing a little hymn together, a part of a hymn, which is kind of appropriate for today. We'll just do this a cappella. Rock of Ages. Ready? Sing with me. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's a 150-year-old hymn. Did you see the theology in there? Be of sin, the double cure. The sin results in double trouble, guilt and corruption. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Well, the theology goes back 2,000 years. The last thing I want to say here is not why the good news is good news. It's when the good news is becomes good news to you or to me as an individual. The gospel becomes good news when God applies it to you personally in baptism. Now, in Acts chapter 2 here, the context, of course, Peter is preaching the very first gospel sermon, and he, it's a Jewish audience, and he tells them that the Messiah came, you crucified your Messiah. And Luke records that the people were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter, what do we do? And here's Peter's answer. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for, for, now here comes the double cure, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of your sin addresses our guilt, and the Holy Spirit addresses our corruption. God applies the saving power of the gospel to you as an individual when you are baptized. Years ago, in 2000, early 2008, I became aware of the the Ingle Trust Fund in Florida. And, of course, the, the tobacco companies have been sued. It's a class action lawsuit. So here in Florida, the Ingle Fund, the Ingle Trust Fund, was a $700 million trust fund that would pay out any claim 
that a Floridian had if they had been harmed by smoking or if they had a relative who had been harmed by smoking. All you had to do was submit paperwork, you know, medical records or what have you, that you had been harmed. And, and I researched it, and it looked legit. My father died in 1997 from heart disease, and it was related to smoking. And so I helped my mother file the paperwork with the Ingle Trust Fund. And by the way, if you're getting all excited about this, the deadline for filing a claim was June 2008. So it, that fund is closed now. But I helped her file the paperwork. Sure enough, she got a payout from the Ingle Trust Fund, and it was, it was legit. Now, she's not a millionaire, but she was a widow on a fixed income, and it helped. I told a lot of people about that in those early months of 2008. As far as I know, nobody I know made application to it. And we're all skeptical, and maybe everybody thought there was nothing to it. But here it was, $700 million available to anybody in Florida who had been harmed by smoking. But it was only actually helpful to those who applied for it. The death of Jesus potentially solves the guilt problem. The resurrection of Jesus potentially solves the corruption problem for the whole world. That verse that we read, 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the one who took God's wrath against our sin upon himself. The rest of the verse says, and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Potentially, the salvation is there for everybody. But in actuality, it will only be experienced and received by those to whom God applies it. And he applies it to those who request it. And that application is made in baptism. Baptism is an immersion in water of somebody who believes the gospel, has confessed Jesus as Lord, and repented of their sins. What an appropriate prescription, what an elegant prescription God has made to receive his salvation. It's perfect. Because how are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. What is our faith specifically? It is our trust in the death of Jesus to pay for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus to heal our corruption. When you are baptized, you are buried with Christ into his death and you are resurrected back up, resurrected with Christ by God. God laid the foundation for salvation historically on the cross and the death of Jesus and his resurrection. But the actual work of salvation for an individual is done by God when that person is baptized. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. When you were baptized, and most of you have been, I understand this. Here's what happened when you were baptized. You were exercising, what does it say? Your faith in the working of God. That is, you believe that at that moment in time, God was working his salvation for you, to you, in you, and on you. You were being buried with Christ and raised to walk in a newness of life. He was forgiving your sin, imputing to you the righteousness of Christ, placing you in Christ, and placing you in the church. Not your parents' faith, but your faith. That's what happened when you were baptized or when you are baptized later on today. Hey, Tom's got the pool heating up right now, and it's ready. Check it on your card. See me after the service, or we'll compare schedules and get together. 
But that is when the, that's when the good news becomes good news to any individual person. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the gospel. It is indeed good news because it's true and because it solves the double trouble of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.